Remember, blessed are means happy are, right? And not even just that. The only people who are happy, truly happy, are those, in this case, that are persecuted for righteousness, in my namesake. So we need to ask those questions, and that's what we're going to do today. So the first question I want to ask is why? Why are, why are, they, why are we persecuted as a part of the kingdom of God? Um, and again, it says, this is not just like some get persecuted. It's, it's really just a part of the deal. Jesus says in John 15, um, he just lays it out for us. As he's, and th- again, this is him uh, approaching the end of, of, his, uh, of his time on earth, and he's having some really serious conversations with his disciples, um, knowing that he's about to leave them. And he says in John 15, 18 through 20, that if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, you serve, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, then they'll keep yours. Uh, 2 Timothy 3 similarly says, uh, Paul is telling Timothy, you know, a young, young man in his faith, trying to lead churches and trying to grow in his faith. He says, listen, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So again, there's no qualifiers there. It's not like some will and we need to cheer them on. It's saying that we all will. And yet there, there is this tension because most of us have not experienced the level of you know, what most of us would call persecution, meaning we generally think of the things described in the video, right? Uh, physical uh, arrest and, and uh, physical danger and harm and those sorts of things. But, but Jesus is going to go on to say, hey, the, you know, when you get, um, they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on your account, reviling you, right? Treating you as they have others, then blessed are you. Uh, Luke In Luke 6, in, in a similar sermon, um, that, that some debated is the same one. It's just Luke's interpretation. Uh, it's called the Sermon on the Plain. So it's similar content. I think it's two different instances personally, but it's similar content. But Jesus actually goes so far to say in Luke 6, 26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And so not only is it, hey, you, if you're following me, you're going to be persecuted, but he actually says, hey, you should be warned if, Everybody's just speaking well of you. If everybody loves you, if you're not a, a offensive to anybody, then you should be concerned. So now that brings us back to our question as to why, though. Why, why would somebody who is um, humble, meek, merciful, right? Why, why would somebody that's pure in heart, somebody that's a peacemaker, why would anybody want to persecute them, right? Why? Well, it's interesting because as you go back and read John 15, honestly, if, if part of what this is going to do is, is sort of check our view of even Jesus. Sometimes we have this view of Jesus and we think that, oh, that, that Jesus would be kind of toler- like admired and tolerated by the world. And some parts of the world would say, oh, yeah, yeah, I like Jesus. I like his teachings, right? I like that he, that he did humanitarian work, right? But I don't like, I don't like his people or I don't like the, the you know, the, the faith or, or whatever, whatever, you know, fill in whatever cultural like phrase goes there. But the reality is, they don't, if they're saying that, they don't actually know Jesus. Because if you know Jesus, you're going to do one of two things. You're either going to love him or you're going to hate him. Because it's interesting. As I've been reading 
Uh, parts that I just love the Gospel of John, and so when, when my kids and I sit down to just kind of read, read a Bible story, we're reading out of the Gospel of John, and we're to the point where uh, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, and prior to that, they've got a plot against Jesus, but then this really cranks up the heat, right? And it's interesting, as you come in and you're trying to explain this to kids, because again, that's one of those things you can just read like, oh yeah, now they want to kill Jesus, and you kind of know on the back end that there's this plot and the trial or whatever, but when you're in that moment, and you've got kids who just don't get it, like, why do they want to kill Jesus, Daddy? And it's kind of a hard question to answer, isn't it? Like, why do they? This guy's healing people. He's feeding people. He's preaching good sermons. Why are they mad at this dude, right? And it's interesting, as you lean in, you have to, you have to begin to get under the surface of what's going on there. Jesus' um, preaching, Jesus' life was offensive to them, meaning the religious people primarily, because he was exposing to them. And now we're getting to the point of, of why we can understand why we get persecuted for being righteous, for following Jesus. Let's look just a little bit closer at Luke chapter 16. Jesus has just said the famous line about how you can't serve two masters. You can't love both God and money, right? You, you know the story. He, he says, you can't love both God and money. You'll end up hating one and loving the other, right? No one can serve two masters, he says in Luke 16, 13. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't have two sovereigns. It, it won't work, Jesus says. So this is, this is familiar. Right after this, though, it's interesting. As you keep reading in Luke 16, it says the Pharisees, comma, who were lovers of money, okay, that's important, heard all of these things, and they did what? They ridiculed him. Okay, so you see it. See it right there. Why did they ridicule him? Because he's exposing them. He's coming after their idol. He, they are the righteous ones in this world. They stake their whole identity on being the good people, right? And they have power because they're the good people, because they're the ones who interpret the law. They're the religious scholars. But it says something about their hearts who were lovers of money. And so what do they do? They feel exposed. So when you get exposed like that, when you start to, to get threatened like that, you got a couple of options, don't you? You can either go, you know what, you're right, and repent and, and come under the truth, or you want to shut that voice down, don't you? When you get exposed like that, it's not a comfortable place to be. you got a choice. You're either going to repent and come under the truth, or you're going to try to shut that voice down. And what do they do? They try to shut that voice down, right? They want to shut Jesus down. So, so over and over again, Jesus exposes their heart, their sin, and because they have hard hearts and they don't come under the truth and worship Jesus, they end up hating Jesus and seeking to kill him. And, and this begins to un Un, like peel back the layers as to why Christians get persecuted. And he goes on to say, in this Luke 16 passage, he says, uh, and he said to them, you are those who, what, justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So Jesus says, hey, you're the kind of person that wants to justify yourself before men. And when you get that going on, then you get attacked. You get any hint, not even personally attacked, you get any hint of preaching that exposes or, or threatens your identity as justified before men, and you get defensive. And this is what 
they're doing. And, and, it, and it goes so far to, that they, like, if you ever wonder, like, how do they get, how does it get so evil, right? How does it get so bent? First, and, and real quick, I forgot to mention, one thing we have to acknowledge when, we, when we're talking about this, that's just kind of a big E on the eye chart that we look over, when you talk about evil and men that justify themselves and how it gets to the point of, of you know, um, explaining away evils like abortion, explaining away evils like slavery that you've seen happen from Christians throughout the years, and even in these moments of how do they get to the point where they're crucifying Jesus, where they're, they're choosing a, a murderer, right, Barabbas, over Jesus so they could put him, like, how do you get to that point in evil? Like, well, one thing we have to remember is we're in a spiritual battle, right? We are at war. We're at war. Peter's going to tell, we'll look at this later, but Peter says, hey, don't be surprised trials come upon you. You need to expect it. Jesus tells the same thing. Hey, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Why? It's a fallen, broken world at war. So, so we need to remember that. But Jesus just calls them out and says, hey, you're the kind of people who justify yourself before men. So this is how they respond. And they double down, right? They don't repent. They have backroom conversations. They start, they, they double down. Even when Jesus heals Lazarus, you'd think they'd be like, you know what? Maybe we ought to, maybe we ought to like take a look at this dude. The guy seems legit. You, you, you brought anybody back from the dead? No, you, no. Maybe he is the Messiah, right? No, what do they do? They double down. We've got to kill him, and we've got to kill him fast. You see the urgency tick up. And not only do they want to kill Jesus, now they want to kill Lazarus because he's a witness to Jesus. How do you explain that kind of evil? How do you explain that kind of persecution? Right here. Right here. They're lovers of money. They're lovers of power. And when righteousness exposes those things, they respond by persecuting the source of that righteousness. So, for us, as we seek to follow Jesus in this world, as we seek to live out our identity, the, the, the truths that are descriptions of our new character, yeah, we're going to be peacemakers. Yeah, we're going to be merciful. But that's not always going to be received well, and there are going to be people who turn that around and persecute us. And here's how it works for us a lot of times. Um, if you cherish chastity, right? If you say, listen, I, especially you young people, right? In general, though, but it's more explicit for you that you're in high school, junior high. If you say, you know what? I, I care about my sexual purity. I'm going to wait, right? I'm, I'm, I'm saving that for me. If you do that, your life will be an attack on people's love for free sex. You see how that works? If you say, you know what, I care about chastity, then your life will be an indictment on people who love to just be able to do whatever they want sexually whenever and however they want, and they don't want to feel that pressure. So, so we'll, we'll start to see that rub. If you embrace temperance, right, like, then your life will be a statement against those who love alcohol. If you, if you say, you know what, no, I'm good, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go there, or I've had, you know, just one for me, or, or whatever, people who claim to be Christians who overindulge, they'll feel threatened by that. And they'll often turn to mocking. You'll often see grown men and women shift back into junior high mode and start mocking people who, who are threatening them, right? You know what I'm talking about here. This is, you see this maybe in the workplace. You see this in different team settings. You see this regularly if you're still living in the world. If you pursue self-control, you will indict those who indulge in excess eating, right? And they might feel the need to justify themselves. If you, if you live simply and happily, then you will show the folly of luxury. 
If you walk humbly with your God, then you will expose the evil of pride. If you're punctual and thorough in your dealings, then you will lay open the inferiority of laziness and negligence. If you speak with compassion, you will throw callousness into sharp relief, and they will get defensive as well. If you are earnest, you will make flippant look flippant instead of clever, right? Um, If you're spiritually minded, you will expose the worldly mindedness of those around you, and you start to see over and over again that as we pursue Jesus, as we embody this righteousness, leads to persecution. And what's important to note in this is persecution doesn't always come from, in fact, I don't know that even the majority of the time it comes from the world. Oftentimes, persecution comes from the hands of Jesus' very church, right? That's who, that's who killed Jesus, right? That's who Jesus had all the, the, the beef with, right, was the religious people, right? So it often comes from religious people or at least nominally religious people, Christian people who, who want to claim that identity but don't actually live it out. That's oftentimes where the most persecution comes. And so that sort of helps you know, put some, some, some framework on why, and I want to tell you a story that will transition us into the how, just a bit. Um, so as I was trying to think and, and process, like, have I ever experienced persecution, or what persecution have I experienced? Again, it, I've, I have no stories of being, you know, arrested, or uh, my life threatened, or being disowned. However, one of the stories I think I've probably shared with you guys before, is I remember, um, so I got saved right before I went into high school. And um, a few years into that, then I'm surrendered to ministry and trying to figure out what that means and didn't have a lot of direction. But anyway, I'm a young man. I'm trying to lead in my high school. And I was sitting at a, uh, um, an FCA, so Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And we had, um, there was like um, representatives from each grade that were the leaders of this that would plan the meetings and the Bible studies and those sorts of things. So I'm sitting at not just a big group of everybody who come to get out of study hall or whatever, but the, the small group, it was supposed to be the leaders of people that were handpicked by the, you know, the teachers and coaches of like, okay, these are the Christian kids. Let's put them on this kind of council and they'll plan this organization. I'm sitting at that table and the conversation comes up of like, okay, we need to have a conversation. We need to have a lesson or a Bible study about dating and sex. And I'm sitting at that table with quote-unquote Christian leaders in the high school, and I get mocked for saying that I'm going to wait until marriage. Like, actually mocked. No, you're not. You're kidding. Really? And most of them had already partaken, and so that's, they start to, you know, again, I wasn't being a jerk. I wasn't, condi- I wasn't standing on the table and telling them they're going to hell. I wasn't, like, telling them I know all their, no, no, no. I was just saying, no, I'm, like, I'm going to wait. And I got mocked. Now, as I'm reflecting on that, first of all, very minor on, on the person. It doesn't even register on the Richter scale of persecution, right? Not a big deal. But here's what, here's what I thought about as I was reflecting on that this week in preparation for this sermon. Um, the only way that that shifted in me because prior to that, I was in full pursuit of that. I was in full pursuit of first opportunity to indulge. Um, and so me, for me, coming to Jesus was weighing out, okay, if I do that, i got to break up with this girl. If I do that, i got to give up that. But here's the thing. I don't ever, like, I didn't have a youth group. I don't remember being taught to wait 
Like, I, I, seriously, when I say I don't have a youth group, like, my mom was the next youngest person at our church services most of the time for me. So, like, I was a youth group, okay? So I grew up in a very small country church. I went to no Pure Love Weights conferences and no purity ceremonies. I didn't have a ring. I didn't have a, a bracelet. I didn't have none of those things. Anybody told me I was supposed to wait. Now, here's why I say that. Because the big idea that Jesus is making, even in the Beatitudes, is it's not about following rules. It's not about morality. It's about the kingdom of God. Because I didn't have anybody teaching me those things. I didn't have anybody telling me. I, like, I was trying to think, like, how did I even know I wasn't supposed to have sex? Like, I guess it was just implicit preaching about adultery. I was kind of in fire brimstone church. But like, certainly everybody around me would have like, been like, yeah, cool, dude, go ahead. It's all good. Like, yeah, you're not really supposed to, but. So why? Well, here's why. Because I've been confronted with the gospel. I had a preacher who preached about the holiness of God and my, the wickedness of my sin, and I was brought to this place where I was confronted by that holiness of God, and I had to be um, confronted with the reality I was going to stand before that holy God one day, and that I had nothing to offer that holy God to, to let me not go to hell. Like, I realized in that moment I deserved hell. And over time, I began to realize I got, I got nothing. I can't try harder, do better, you know, be a good person. I, I have nothing. I had to surrender to Jesus. And, and when I surrendered to Jesus, like I said, it was clear. If I go to Jesus, I got to let these things go. And premarital sex was one of those things. A girlfriend was one of those things in that moment. And, and so I just did that, and I just surrendered. And here's why I say all that, not to make myself look good, but to remind us all, and especially us parents, that the most important thing for us, all of us, but especially for our kids, is that we have an encounter with Jesus, that we know the gospel, that if you get that backwards, and if you just want your kids to be moral, and you hope that they follow Jesus, or you hope that they get saved, then you're gonna be grossly disappointed when they leave your house. And they don't want anything to do with your morals. They don't want anything to do with your Jesus. They don't want anything to do with your church. But if your primary objective, your primary hope, your primary prayer, your primary conversations are about our need for a Savior, then the Holy Spirit will take care of those morality issues. Along with you, right? Get the privilege of teaching them what it means to follow Jesus. But, it, but if you just want to teach them the morality of following Jesus and, and not their need for a personal Savior, then you're going you're to be grossly disappointed at how that doesn't work out. Jesus starts the Beatitudes, and he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. And he goes on through the others, and they all have different blessings. And then he ends it here with the same thing. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. What it's about primarily is the kingdom. Are you a part of the kingdom? Is Jesus your king? Is his kingdom your kingdom? Or are you still after the world and its kingdom? Are you still pursuing those things and you just hope that this Jesus can kind of help get you those other things? The biggest thing that Jesus wants his people to see is this is my kingdom and this is the most important thing. And if we don't get this right, then none of the rest of it matters. That the kingdom is the biggest issue that Jesus is, is teaching. Because they had some misunderstandings, as we looked at last week. They had some misunderstandings about what the kingdom was, right? And Jesus is, is telling them, hey, my kingdom looks like this. You need to know that. And you need to know how to become a part of it. Because this is not 
hey, go find some persecution. Go get yourself in some, in some, you know, some, some mess where you've got to sacrifice and be persecuted, and then the Lord will be pleased with you, and you can be in his kingdom. That's not what this is. This is, hey, when you encounter the kingdom of God, your values change. He tells other stories. Jesus is a storyteller, and all the time he's like, hey, the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field, and when one guy finds it, he does what? He covers it up. He says, man, i got to go sell everything i got so I can buy this field. Because that treasure that's hidden there in that field is worth anything I lose to get it. Same thing about a pearl. Over and over again, Jesus is telling us, hey, the kingdom of God is the thing that we long for. The kingdom of God is the thing that we have to have. And when we have that, when we have that, those other pieces of discipleship, the other pieces of morality fall into place a whole lot easier. And true change happens as the Holy Spirit is now dwelling inside of us and inside of our teenagers and making us into the image of God. So that takes us into the second question is of how. How is it that Jesus can, can say that the people who are truly happy are the ones who are persecuted for righteousness' sake and to go on to say, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you rejoice and be glad. How can Jesus say that kind of stuff? It sounds like crazy talk. How? Well, the how is, again, our value, our treasure gets shifted. Because if, if we're still where the guys are in Luke 16, justifying ourselves before men, then there's no way we rejoice and be glad when we get persecuted, right? But when we have been justified, before God, through Jesus and his blood. Now, now, our kingdom is in heaven. Our citizenship is there. It's primary. It, 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 it's, it's the thing that we cling to. It's the thing that we hope in. He says, rejoice and be glad even because we have a reward that is great in heaven. They persecuted the prophets who were, who were before you. They persecuted Jesus. And, and so when we are persecuted, we fall in line with them. So the how is that as we suffer, as we are persecuted, we have to remember that our reward is great. Now, this gets into a weird tension because we don't earn our salvation, right? It's not merit-based. We don't, you know, the more we suffer, the more salvation we get. It's, it's not like that. However, it is kind of like that, right? There's this tension because Jesus says that our reward is great. We should rejoice and be glad because our reward is great when we are persecuted, right? 2 Corinthians 4, 17 says, for, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So there's an active correlation there that the suffering that we're going through and the persecution that we're going to endure is, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So, so there is a sort of this direct correlation b- between when we are persecuted, our reward is increased. Our reward is, is cranked up. Now, this matters because if you think about it, if we're all getting the same reward, no matter what, whether we're persecuted or not, we're just going to opt out of that persecution, right? Right? Like if you're just like, hey, we all get the same deal at the end, but if you want to take the hard way, go ahead. The rest of us will meet you over here. Like, ain't nobody going down the hard way, right? 
But Jesus says, wide is the path that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way it leads unto life. And so, so what is that, right? It, it's the people who are truly following Jesus, who are being persecuted for Jesus' righteousness. And that's, a, that's an important thing to, to note here in verse 10. For, for righteousness' sake, right? And he goes on to say, uh, when they revile and persecute you, utter all kinds of evil. Uh, he, he's talking about for righteousness' sake, for his sake. Uh, let's see. Let's, we need to look at First Peter just real quick. First Peter chapter four, because there needs to be some qualifications about why we're persecuted. Because not all persecution is blessed. Okay. So First Peter four says this: Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. This is us. Okay. A lot of us are being sort of woke up out of this slumber of about 300 years of Christendom in America, and we're just now starting to get some glimpses of what it means to be persecuted. Again, not trying to say that's a negative thing. I'm just saying, hey, we're, we're like the kids who grew up in Disneyland that are having to learn the rest of the world is not like that. And Disneyland is sort of being <laughs> torn down, okay? When it, when it comes to Christendom, I'm not saying America's gone. I'm saying when it comes to us having this moral majority, th- this, this idea that, yeah, being a Christian, listen, for most of us, most of our lives, being a Christian was even advantageous to us as far as like business deals and stuff. Like it wasn't like this, oh my goodness, what's going to happen if I choose Jesus? It's, it's going to go bad for me in terms of, you know, my relationships and my business and whatever. We, n- most of us haven't had to wrestle through that. It's beginning to shift a bit. Jesus said that he said, I, this is relevant to last week's and it's all tied together, but we're talking about being peacemakers. Jesus says, hey, I actually didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And I'm going to turn daughter against mother and, and son against father and, and, and families against one another. And what, what, what's he mean by that, right? Is he just trying to stir up some stuff? He's saying, no, no, no. But when, when people meet me, their whole value system changes and I'm their king and that's going to be offensive to other people. So for you and I, most of you, and there could be some exceptions, but most of us, when we decided that we're going to follow Jesus, most of us didn't have to wonder whether or not our family was going to disown us, right? That's not a reality that most of us walked through, but let me tell you something. Ask a brother or a sister who converted from Islam, and they'll tell you that's 100% a reality. It's 100% a reality that many of them have faced. Our missionary friends that that serve over in northern Iraq deal with this regularly. When they are witnessing to people and telling them about the kingdom of God, they have to make sure that they walk through and count the cost with them because for many of them, this will mean the end of their family relationships. For many of them, this could cost them their job. It has. One of their earliest converts lost his his job and his apartment and his family's blessing all within a matter of like 48 hours of trusting Jesus. And then he got beat later when the town elders found out about it. So this is real, right? This is, this is a reality that most of us haven't been super acquainted with, but it is real. And it is a part of following Jesus. It's a part of what Jesus is going to do. So when he says, listen, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword, what, what he's saying is when we meet Jesus, when we become a part of the kingdom of God, our lives will be offensive to those who are not a part of the kingdom of God. And we will get Persecuted, okay? So, shouldn't be something strange that happens to you. Peter says, you should expect it. So, American church, we're gonna have to start hearing that more and more, okay? This is not strange. This is normal in history, and this is normal in lots of other places in the world. It may become increasingly normal for us, okay? Don't think it's strange. 
Keep following Jesus, he says. In fact, he says, but rejoice. First Peter goes on. Insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Again, this is madness talk. Either the gospel is, is good news to your soul and, and, it, and it enriches you and, and causes you to rejoice in sufferings, or it's nonsense. Like there is no like kind of accepting of the gospel. There's no kind of accepting of the Bible. If people want to do that, they don't really understand the Bible. 1 Corinthians says that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Foolishness. You really get it. You really hear the, the language here. This is not about some moral lessons. This is not about how to be a better person. This says, hey, when you suffer, go ahead and rejoice. It's crazy talk. Unless you have a new kingdom. Unless you have new values, right? But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So, we rejoice when we share in his sufferings because one day when his glory is revealed, it will be compensated in such a way that the greater our suffering has been, the greater our reward will be in that moment when it's made right. He says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, then you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So if you're insulted for the name of Christ, Peter says, then you're blessed. You're blessed. You're happy. This is beatitude. Because the Spirit of God and glory rest upon you. That's offensive to others, right? That light is offensive to the darkness. But, Peter, real quick, Peter says, hey, listen to me, church. Let none of you suffer from being a fool, right? Don't suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler or as a busybody, right? So if you get yourself into suffering because you're a goofball, because you're evil, because you're a gossip, don't claim the name of Jesus and say you're persecuting with Jesus and blessed am I and rejoice. No, no. Peter says, you need to shut up. You're not on our team. Stop acting like it. You're making the rest of us look bad. How many of you wanted to say that to lots of people on TV? I'm like, please don't. Please don't. Let them speak for the Christian church. <laughs> like, I'm embarrassed often. Like, no, 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 please. They're, they don't speak for us. Foolishness, right? So Peter says, don't, no, no. If you suffer for that stuff, that's on you. But if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. But rather, glorify God in that name. It's craziness. Isaiah 51, uh, way back before Jesus, prophets says this. Listen to me, you who know righteousness. The people in whose heart is my law. This is God talking to his people. He says, listen to me, you who know righteousness, who hunger and thirst for it. You know my law. My law is in your hearts, not just externally. It's actually in you. You want to do it. Listen to me. Don't fear the reproach of man. Don't be dismayed at their revilings. Why? <laughs> Listen. For the moth will eat them up like a garment. And the worm will eat them up like wool. But my righteousness will be forever. And my salvation to all generations. Church, that's good news. He says, listen, those of you following me, those of you who have my law in your heart, you want righteousness, you want to live rightly, don't give any weight to those making fun of you. Don't give any weight to those who are reviling you, who say negative things about you. Take heart, right? Because they won't be here one day. And you will be. You will be in, in, in heaven forever with the Lord's righteousness. This is what Jesus is saying to his people all of the time. He's reminding them, hey, don't count what you have to lose here as a real loss because nobody who gives up anything for the sake of my kingdom will, will be on the other side of this going, hey, I got gypped. No, no, he says it'll all be returned a hundred or a thousandfold. Anything you suffer for, anything you get persecuted for following Jesus will be returned 
a hundredfold or more. So when we suffer, we take heart because it confirms that we're following Jesus, right? This is how we can rejoice because when we suffer for Jesus' sake, it confirms that we're following Jesus. We're identified with him and we can rejoice in that. Oh man, I'm actually there with Jesus. I'm doing this thing. I'm living this life. Uh, He's real inside of me. So it confirms. And he says, just like the prophets they did before, if you know the story of the prophets, most of them were murdered. Most, Most of them were killed. So when Jesus is talking about persecution, he very much has martyrdom in view. Doesn't mean we seek martyrdom, right? Doesn't mean we seek persecution. We're not masochists, right? We don't, we don't go after this stuff. But as we live faithfully, as we live righteously, as we follow Jesus, when it comes, we rejoice and we're glad because our reward is worth it. It confirms where we are headed. We are on the narrow path. When we encounter this sort of persecution, it confirms we're on the narrow path. And therefore, we rejoice. And we rejoice because we have a reward one day, it says, that is great in heaven. A reward that is, that is great. And the suffering prepares a, a, a reward of glory that far outweighs anything we've suffered here. I attached a couple of articles, or an article and a book recommendation here. And many of you guys were here a few years ago. We actually took a Sunday night and watched the movie, The Insanity of God. And if you didn't get to see that, I would encourage you to watch the movie. Or the book is attached on your, on your uh, digital bulletin there on your app. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie or read the book, I'd encourage you to do so. It's incredible stories of modern-day persecution. It's incredible stories of modern-day faith standing in the face of persecution and it'll encourage your soul and challenge your soul. Um, and we as, we as American Christians need to lean into this idea that, hey, it makes it really clear that if we're following Jesus, we're actually going to be persecuted. So it's sort of one of, even a hard test of like, hey, are you being persecuted? In any way, like it, it is, because as Luke 6 says, hey, if everybody just speaks well of you, you might want to check your heart. It doesn't mean you go out and just fuss with people and try to make people mad. No, no, no. But if you're actually living righteously, following Jesus, there will be some persecution that comes. But however, this is the very fuel that leads people, like our missionary friends that are back there on on the board, to walk away from a second generation law firm, a life set up well for them, a couple kids already there, Comfort and wealth is in their future. God calls them. They go. Now they're in northern Iraq. I can't say their name and the location together. Like, there's, there's danger in that. So don't post about that. Like, for real. But that's what, that's what leads to death-defying missions. That's what leads to people being radical in our following of Jesus is understanding that our reward is great, that we're no longer after life in this world here, but rather in heaven. And we start living for heaven and we start to be able to risk greatly for the kingdom of, of the Lord. So I want to close with a Jim Elliott quote. If you know Jim Elliott, um, pretty well-known missionary who was killed in Ecuador, uh, some books written about him, um, Tip of the Spear, End of the Spear, rather, and his wife, wife Elizabeth, went on to ride, and is hugely influential. But he, he is famous for saying, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool 
who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So, church, let's let this passage read us. Okay, we don't just read about what it reads us. It's living and active. It exposes us, cuts to the core. Some of us have been cut through this this um, journey through the Beatitudes. Some of you have been exposed. You're like, I don't, I'm not sure. I'm actually a Christian. I think I might have been just been playing with this whole deal. I might have just been playing church. I might have just taken the name tag because it was easier, right? I might have just done it because I thought it would help make my life better. If you've been exposed in that way, and you're like, hey, none of this is true inside of me. Again, the Bible says regularly, hey, today's the day of salvation. Don't wait. Yeah, that's condemning. Yeah, that's hard. You feel that. But the good news is it can, it can be laid down at the altar, at the cross, at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, laid down today and never picked up again. You can come and be made new. Don't wait. Doesn't matter. You might have spent years pretending. You might have been a leader at the church. Your family might think you're a Christian and you're like, man, I, I don't get it. I, I don't think I was ever there. I've never been born again. Don't hang on to your pride and the cost of your soul. That's a foolish trade off. Lay down your pride. Let Jesus give you your soul back. Okay, let's pray. God, help us. We need it in ways we don't even know how to articulate. We need it. Uh, as we walk through these Beatitudes and, and we hear from you, Lord, there's many things we don't fully understand. There's, there's many things that have challenged us. There's, there's many things that we know we need to surrender to you to try to live in the tension of trying to do better, but also just worshiping you. Help us, Lord. Would you make yourself big, even in this song and in this, in this Christmas, this Advent season, would you so exalt yourself that our hearts would be transformed as we just behold you? As we behold you, we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. Thank you for that, Lord. Help us. Help us. In all the ways that we know and the ways we don't even know how to articulate, come, help us. It's in your name we pray.